This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora. We're business and trial lawyers with the Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're talking with Jim McNamara, a lawyer in Columbus, Ohio. Jim McNamara's practice focuses on police abuse cases. He has prosecuted civil actions against police officers around the state. Based on what he has seen, Jim can provide us with insight to the stories we've been reading about in the videos we've been seeing on TV. Welcome to Lawyer Up, Jim. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Jim, you've got a very unique practice and um, uh, very curious about how it works and what kind of cases you see. But generally, what influenced you to pursue police abuse cases? Well, it wasn't really from my personal experiences early in life. Uh, I grew up a child of privilege, white, lived in Upper Arlington. My family was well off. My dad was a lawyer, went to the best schools. Uh, I really wasn't aware that other kids right here in town my age were growing up in very different circumstances and conditions. My brothers and I all committed crimes of one kind or another when we were young. I stole squirt guns from a local drugstore and got caught. My brother uh, borrowed someone's car for a joyride. Uh, the police were involved, but we never were charged with anything. It was taken home to our parents, and I got paddled by the principal at my school in elementary and, you know, teenage drinking, things like that. Uh, no record, no jail time, and none of us, by the way, grew up to be uh, criminals. We all got to go to college. Uh, but I became interested in social justice issues when I got away from home. I uh, got involved with movements, started going to meetings, working on things, the anti-war movement, uh, the later ends of the civil rights movement at that time, the women's movement, Stonewall happened, gay rights, environmental issues. We started a tenant union when I was in law school. So uh, all of this was uh, exciting to me. I was meeting some really great people, uh, many of whom were not uh, like the stereotypes that I was raised on about uh, non-white people or hillbillies or you know kids of factory workers or country people. They were very different, very nice, fun to work with, very smart, uh, big awakening. So in all that activism and protests, we came across police misconduct a lot. Uh, not at all dissimilar to what we're seeing right now in Columbus and cities around the country. So when I went to law school, I came in with those experiences and interests and I found the National Lawyers Guild and some great law professors who were helpful, the law clinic there and I began to work in the civil rights movement, even as a law student. Jim, how long have you been practicing law? And it sounds like you've devoted your practice to this area. Uh, primarily, I got out of law school in 74. And even before that, as a law student, I had a chance through the legal clinic to work on a big class action police misconduct case against the Columbus police involving uh, the anti-war protests and police reaction to them. So I was already interviewing witnesses and going down to federal court as a second year law student. 
give us a sense for the type of cases you've handled specifically what are the allegations and if you see the same thing over and over what what's happening in those cases when I got to be an attorney, opened an office uh, with some other young radical lawyers, we almost immediately began to get calls about individual cases of police abuse. Uh, so I have got into it, been doing it for 46 years. I've probably represented uh, two or 3,000 different individuals over that time, maybe more in lawsuits in Ohio courts and federal courts. And truthfully, although every single case is different in its specific facts, uh, there are recurring types of violations. But in terms of the settings, I mean, I've represented victims of police abuse in big cities like Columbus, in medium-sized cities, uh, pretty much every suburban city around Columbus you know, Westerville, Gahanna, Upper Arlington, Delaware, Grandview, Reynoldsburg, Whitehall, all the suburbs and cities of medium size all around the state. Uh, going from largest to smallest, I've represented a lot of victims of police abuse uh, by state troopers and the state highway patrol, by county sheriff's deputies in maybe more than 20 counties of those in Ohio. And even in little townships and villages, places with less than a thousand people and a police force of four or three. Uh, you know, I've represented victims in those cases. In terms of age, uh, every age of person has come through our office and been victims of these things. I represented little kids, uh, a girl of 12 or 13 who was grabbed away from her grandmother one day when she jaywalked by a police officer who jumped out of his vehicle and ran and grabbed her and dragged her back to the paddy wagon, threw her in the back and took her down to jail as her grandmother cried and screamed, what are you doing? Locked her uh, up in a little room, basically a cell. I mean, imagine what that does to a 12 or 13 year old girl. And it was just because the officer was pissed off that she ran across in front of his vehicle and he wasn't paying attention and it made him step on the brakes. Imagine what effect that has on a kid, you know, even this many years later. I've represented people who are senior citizens in their 70s, a guy on a porch who dares to complain to an officer down on the street, why are you being so physical to that man? And officer comes up on the porch and does the same thing to him. Uh, another uh, senior citizen, a wonderful woman, and I give you a few of the facts of this because this answers your other question about what kinds of violations. This is pretty much a typical case that we've had over the years. It's not a shooting death. It's just a, a gross abuse of people's rights. Wonderful woman named Marshane Hawkins. Licensed practical nurse, retired after 25 years at OSU Hospital age 67, four feet, 10 inches tall, got four adult children, nobody in her family has any criminal background of any kind, a uh, bunch of grandkids. Uh, she owns her own home over by Fifth Avenue here in Columbus. And one of her sons, Russell, had come over to work on the brakes on his sister's Toyota. One evening, he's out in the driveway with the car jacked up and he's 
bent down working on it when a man comes up behind him, puts a gun to the back of his head and says, you move and I'll kill you. Uh, scared and not realizing that the man behind him was a policeman, Russell bolted for the door. Uh, the officer who for some reason suspected this young black man might possibly be a thief in his own driveway, called for backup, ran and caught Russell on the front porch where he was frantically ringing the doorbell and calling for his mother for help. Uh, the cop slammed him against the house, put him in a chokehold to his throat. Uh, Marchane came to the door, uh, opened it, looked out on her front porch and didn't understand is trying to explain to the officer, this is my son, this is our house. He's, he's, he's invited here, this is our car. The officer uh, wouldn't let go of him, uh, said, you know, well, what did he run for? I don't like, nobody runs from me. By this time, more officers are arriving. Uh, another son, adult son of hers, David, comes out. He's maced and dragged off the porch. Marchane is shoved off the front porch, landing down at the bottom of the steps with a broken arm. Uh, daughter Cassandra comes out screaming at the police. Um, so they all get arrested. They all get put in cruisers. The, the little children, uh, Russell has gone in the house, taken his kids where they can't see this. Two police come bursting into the house and drag him away with his children holding onto his leg crying. Uh, they take the children to children's services. Again, can you imagine? Uh, Marchane and her children are all charged with false charges. Uh, they're prosecuted for five months. The charges hang over their heads. Uh, they are offered a plea bargain. If you plead guilty to something less, you won't have to do time. They said, we didn't do anything. This is all false. Uh, they go to a trial. The trial starts. The officers have all filed dishonest police reports. Uh, the officers start to take the stand, and it's completely obvious that they're making this up. They can't even tell the same story among them. The municipal court judge here in town is so incensed that he drags the lawyers in the back and uh, tells them he wants the case dropped, and he orders transcripts of the police officer's testimony, sends them to the Columbus police, uh, in the hope of some action, uh, some charges against the officers. Uh, the city attorney at that time is so uh, stubborn, uh, it's not the current city attorney, but they say, we will not drop the charges, we're going forward with the trial unless they promise to sign a paper saying they won't sue us. Uh, the Hawkins say the hell with that, the trial starts up and the case is eventually thrown out. Uh, that is a, an archetypal, and then after three years of litigation, uh, we get them a small amount of money, uh, not justice at all, but uh, eventually, you know, there is some compensation for it, but if I can quote uh, little Mrs. Hawkins, who was, a, I mean, I went over and she would cook me dinner. She was a wonderful gal. <laughs> Uh, she said, I was brought up to believe that the police are someone you trust, and I brought my children up that way. But my view of that has changed, 67 years old. My greatest fear right now is what happens if someone breaks into my house. I'd rather take a burglar on hand-to-hand -hand than call the police. I never want to see them around my place again. You never really get over something like that. 
I relive that event over and over in my mind. Um, that is the kind of case more so than the killings and the ones that have been the most highly publicized. That's the kind of case that I handle in terms of gender, uh, men and women are victims of these police misconduct cases. Uh, women have a unique circumstance. Uh, I've represented a dozen or more women who were sexually assaulted or even worse by police officers who stopped them, picked them up. One woman who was celebrating her 21st birthday got stopped for drunk driving in the officer in a smaller community in southeastern Ohio, took her out in the woods and made her uh, have sex with him. Um, a couple of uh, Bible students, two young women over near Dayton who are coming home from Christmas shopping at the mall, get pulled over. The officer gets them out, leans them up against the car and just feels them up mercilessly for 45 to 60 seconds. Uh, and just on the assumption that no one will ever believe it and it's not on tape. Uh, in terms of race, the victims that I have represented are, I've represented hundreds of white people who have had these kinds of experiences, including families of white people who have been killed by the police. But disproportionately, uh, the victims tend to come from communities of color far more than the percentage of people in the community that are non-white. So if that gives you sort of an outline of the scope of the problem, it can happen to anyone. Uh, it usually comes out of nowhere. These are often attitude arrests. I don't like what you said, man on the porch. I don't, you know, and so they turn into uh, battles. Jim, uh, just listening to you, all the different clients, the number of cases involving different uh, police agencies and different jurisdictions seems to refute the notion that it's just a few bad apples. How do you respond to that comment that we seem to hear that it's just a few bad apples that we need to weed out? Um, officials would love you to believe that. Police departments, police unions, uh, when they admit there is anything wrong ever at all, would love you to believe that. That's a bunch of BS. Uh, it's not anything to do with a few bad apples in an otherwise good barrel. It's entirely systematic. It is a product of training and culture. Uh, I have an article called Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop, written by a police officer who came from a police officer family. Uh, who served 10 years in a police department in California. And he writes of it beautifully about how it's time that he's now ashamed of that during his time, uh, he hurt people through inaction, allowed others to be hurt. Um, he said that reforms are not working. He talked a lot about the training and hiring and socialization of new police officers and the kind of education uh, and indoctrination that they get when they come into it. And it's, he says it's absolutely the structure of the way that police departments operate that, uh, you know, contributes to the problem. And 
For example, he says, uh, did I ever plant drugs? Did I ever plant a gun on someone? Did I ever make a false arrest? Believe it or not, the answer is no. For me, cheating was no fun. I liked to get my stats the legitimate way, but I knew officers who kept a little baggie of whatever, or maybe a pocket knife that was a little too big in their war bags. Yes, we call our duffel bags war bags. Did I ever tell anybody about it? Not once. No, I did not. Did I ever confess my suspicions when cocaine suddenly showed up in a gang member's jacket? No, I did not. Never once. I learned that even police leadership hates rats. That's why no one is changing things from the inside. They can't. The structure will not allow it. And he says that's the point of what I'm telling you. We were all in it together. He knew cops who pulled women over to flirt with them. He knew cops who would pepper spray sleeping bags of homeless people so they'd have to throw them away. He knew cops who would intentionally anger suspects so that they could claim they were assaulted. He admitted that he personally was particularly good at winding people up verbally until they lashed out so he could beat them up. Nobody spoke up. Nobody stood out. It's what they call the blue wall or the blue curtain, the code of silence, and you never betray it. Now, the way that it happens is, and it begins in the police academy, uh, how, do, how do nice young men and women who think they want to serve the public and become police officers and go into this turn out that way? How does it get that way? Um, every individual cop's biases do come into play, but it's the profession that's actually toxic, and it starts from day one of basic training. Every police academy is somewhat different, but all of them share certain features. They're taught by older cops. They're run like paramilitary boot camps. They have a strong emphasis on protecting yourself more than the public or anyone else. Uh, he said the majority of his time in the academy was spent doing aggressive physical training and watching video after video after video of police officers being murdered in the line of duty. Uh, nearly everyone coming into law enforcement is bombarded with dash cam footage of officers being ambushed and killed over and over and over. Um, what he was taught and what most officers are taught is, and this is a phrase that's used, I've seen it used in training materials. I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six, meaning I'll take my chances in court rather than risk being hurt. Uh, police officers are able to think this way because police unions are extremely overpowered. Let me stop you for let me stop you for sure. a second, because sure. I want unions to be a discussion in and of itself. I want to break down what you're talking about. You've talked about three things, as far as I can see, if we can put it in categories. Sort of the systemic training, the blue wall, and this emphasis on paramilitary self-protection. Those are the three nuggets that I got. The common factor to all that seems to be this notion of us versus them. 
Am I hitting on something? That's exactly right. And in fact, there are trainers, a very famous guy who does a lot of this police training is a guy named Colonel Dave Grossman, calls himself a killologist. And Grossman, uh, I don't know if the Columbus police still use him, but police departments all around the country do. And he has this essay called Sheep, Wolves, and Sheepdogs. And the cops are the sheepdogs. And the wolves are the bad guys. And the citizens, imagine that this is how police officers are taught to think of us. The citizens are the sheep. And Grossman makes sure to mention how the stupid sheep, that means us American people, uh, to us, sheepdogs look more like wolves than sheep. And that's why they dislike the sheepdogs, the police. So this whole they hate you for protecting them and only I love you and only I can protect you and only your brother officers and this team we're a part of is all that you can count on, all that you can trust. This is a psychological tactic of abusers where they try to get to coerce people into isolation only to associate with people like them and law enforcement does this too pitting officers against civilians. Uh, this is why they don't understand why anyone would dare to criticize them as if that were somehow unpatriotic instead of what all those people fought and died for in all those wars that the United States has been through to protect the First Amendment. It was written so we could criticize government officials and agents who we think are making mistakes. And yet, you're not allowed to talk bad about them. And they use this to increase that sort of isolated, us against the public mentality that you mentioned, Jack. It's like uh, pitting officers against civilians, like they don't understand what you do, fellow officer. They don't respect your sacrifice, fellow officer. They just wanna get away with crimes. You're only safe with us. So you better not tell on us if we violate some rules because we're all a team and we're all in this together and whatever we have to do to get the bad guys that's what we're going to do uh, this wolves and sheepdogs dynamic is one of the most important things about policing for the very reason that you mentioned that uh, criminals are seen first of all the world is seen in black and white there are the good people there are the criminals and there are us who protects one from the other. Uh, there are certain people that are just plain criminals. Born that way, they're not a legitimate part of our community. Uh, they're individual bad actors. Their bad actions are solely the result of their inherent criminality. It has nothing to do with their lifestyle, their background, their situation. It can't be changed. They'll always be bad. So it's exactly what you said, yes. Jim, uh, it seems to me, though, that there's a self-preservation component. Uh, law enforcement's a dangerous job. I had a, uh, a friend of mine in law enforcement tell me that whenever he's struggling with a suspect, there's always a gun in play. And until that person is subdued, that gun, which is his gun, is a threat to him. And that's how he justifies whatever force is necessary to subdue a suspect. How do you respond to that mentality? Uh, 
Well, there are uh, a certain number of situations where that's an entirely appropriate thought. Let's start with that. Um, but more than 99% of all calls never require any kind of physical or armed response. So uh, then in those 1% or less that do, uh, many of them, uh, the physical contact was, you know, what caused you to be struggling with the suspect in the first place? If they are a mentally ill person on the street bothering people, uh, really shouldn't we have a mental health expert and a social worker there instead of an armed man uh, from the police department? Um, you know, and these are issues when they talk about defunding police, nobody's really talking about having no one to protect us uh, from those instances of serious threat, but rather, uh, like in some cities, you know, 15 to 20% of the calls involve those kind of things, public acting out where there really wasn't any need for struggle, but police officers are not trained to be mental health experts and social workers. And so because of their approach being uh, the use of arrest and force if you don't follow my orders, and also because they can't always tell if someone is uh, truly having a, I mean, I've had uh, diabetic clients arrested who the officers thought were resisting, uh, were having a seizure. I've had clients with cerebral palsy who the officer thought was just drunk or you wouldn't walk that way and started pushing them around. So many of these situations can be resolved other than in violence. Everybody, including a police officer, has a right to defend themselves. And uh, if somebody goes for your gun uh, to do what you have to do, the point though is that that happens so incredibly rarely. I have met 40 and 45 year veterans of police work who never fired their firearm once in the line of duty in all those decades. So um, this can be done depending on utilization of police for situations that really require it. And then of course, if you go into a situation with the training that we were talking about earlier, uh, seeing everyone as potentially about to kill you uh, it's no surprise that you then, you know, uh, you're told when you go to a scene to seize control of it. Well, maybe that's not what's called for. Maybe what's called for is you to stand back a distance and listen and watch and see what's going on. But this is not the approach that officers are given training in. I mean, they're required to handle such a wide variety, you know, be a marriage counselor, and a homeless person's advocate and deal with mental health issues and deal with drug-related issues and deal with so many uh, petty minor crimes that shouldn't even really be, should, you know, a murderer and someone who might have cashed a $20 bill that was for, uh, false get the same person coming to respond to it. And that's what uh, got the fella killed in Minneapolis. So. These are bigger issues than just your friend's situation, but it does break down into uh, officers jumping to that far too quickly to be becoming in a struggle in the first place, when many times it's really not necessary. Jim, let me 
let me follow on to what John asked you about. He was asking about the potential for violence in every encounter that some police officers envision. And you responded with a number of examples where police officers just aren't trained to deal with a variety of odd circumstances. So that's a second important factor to this notion of us versus them. But I want to go back to that first story you told, and the lady's name, I think, was Hawkins? Yes, Marshane Hawkins. It seems to me that it's not the us versus them or the lack of training that created the problem there. I gotta believe that Marshane's problem was that he was black. Well, yeah, and of course that affects the perception, what neighborhood you're in, uh, the race of the citizen, um, you know, the economic standing of the citizen, you very rarely, I've probably had two or three cases in 46 years of had a well-to-do business person dressed in a suit have to call me for help because of police abuse. Uh, you know, so whatever stereotypes there are, are reinforced. And um, police officers in much larger numbers are in uh, communities of color and low-income low communities, which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's a high crime area. Well, that's because you make more arrests there, not necessarily because there's more crime there, but you have twice as many police officers, and they're all doing something. Uh, the, in in Marshane Hawkins and her family's case, if the officer saw a young African-American man bent over in a car, at a car on a driveway, um, walking up and saying, excuse me, what are you doing, is not an unreasonable approach. In fact, it's really the only sane approach because you don't know what you have. And to presume the worst of a total stranger in a situation where you have no facts is just an example of that overreaction to that uh, better, better to, uh, you know, be judged by 12 than carried by six. I'll use force even when I don't have to, to make sure nothing happens to me. So uh, if you move, I'll shoot you or I'll kill you with a gun out is not the first conversational start. Uh, and, but especially when then the young man, uh, he was an adult, but the son gets to the porch and he's knocking on the door yelling for his mother. Any doubt the officer had at that point about is this someone stealing tires or messing with somebody else's car is now gone. Nobody goes to their victim's front door and pounds on it yelling for mom. So the officer had to know by that point he had made a mistake. But now it's an attitude arrest. I'm pissed off. Nobody runs for me. Nobody talks to me that way. I'm the law, and I see hundreds of, and it's justified in the minds of officers the way they're trained. Nobody gives me a hard time. You know, you run, you get hurt. You talk back, you get hurt. You don't do exactly what I tell you when I tell you. There are consequences to you because I'm the boss here. Even in situations where it makes no sense to escalate it like that, and modern training would suggest de-escalation, but that's in the books. Uh, that's often laughed at by the older online supervisors who tell them, yeah, that's what they taught you in school. Let me show you how it really is out here. You're the boss. 
And anybody who doesn't think so gets taught that real quickly. Jim, is, am I correct that the police are, from a legal standpoint, given a lot more leeway with people that they encounter with traffic stops, that oftentimes police are trained that if a person does something, such as uh, not signaling a correct lane change, that that's a pretext for stopping them and looking for a more serious offense, such as drugs or, or you know, uh, something else that might be going on? Do you see that type of uh, problem? All the time. I just finished a case for a young man who's a lawyer uh, who was pulled over in Grandview by the Grandview police who uh, were just out trolling around for people to pull over. He did not use his turn signal uh, driving down a street near Grandview Avenue uh, not to change lanes or to turn from one street to another, but to pull over to the curb and park in a parking lane. And they used that as the excuse. They held him for an hour out outside of his car in the freezing cold. They asked him over and over again, we want to search your car. He had flown in for Thanksgiving to visit his parents. And uh, he was visiting friends in Grandview that night. Uh, but he was from out of state, had borrowed a car from a buddy of his. And uh, they thought, well, here's a likely guy. So uh, they called for a drug dog within the first two minutes of pulling him over. Uh, after they walked up and got his license and registration of his friend's truck and they walked back to their cruiser, they immediately called for a drug dog. And it was 30 or 35 minutes later before the dog got there. And they asked him over and over and over again. It's all on camera. Um, well, if you're not hiding anything, why won't you let us look in the trunk? We want your consent to search. If you're not doing anything wrong, why can't we? Of course, it's an appropriate answer to say because I'm an American citizen and we don't have to put up with that. You know, we, we have a constitution that says armed representatives of the state can't just walk into our house or look through our car and we should be ashamed not to let them. Uh, but, you know, they waited till the drug dog got there and so forth. So um, those kinds of pretextual stops occur all the time. And I say pretextual because even if there was a real traffic violation, the officer really has in mind using it as an excuse because your vehicle looks suspicious. What is he doing over here? You were racially profiled. What are they doing? Maybe they, that, that's too nice of a car for people that look like that. I bet you they've got drugs. Oh, he wavered in his lane. He crossed over the mid lane. Let's pull him over. Uh, but it's not illegal to pull somebody over if you actually observe them committing even the most insignificant and minor of traffic offenses. There are, uh, thanks to some real good uh, recent uh, Supreme Court opinions, um, some limits on how long they can hold you and what things they can do with you if all they have is a minor traffic offense. Uh, but, you know, officers don't worry about that at the time. They hope to intimidate you into saying yes. And the way they treated my lawyer client, if he had not been an experienced attorney who had done criminal work, uh, he would have felt terrible fear and pressure to say no to those guys. 
Yeah, I, I think that the, um, if you would agree with this, that that's the way these police officers are trained, though. It's not that they're making this up. They are trained to find a reason to stop a motorist, especially, say, after midnight on a Saturday night, because they know that the chances are that that person may have been coming back from uh, drinking and, and, and maybe driving um, you know, under the influence. So their training says, let's pull over as many people as we can. Chances are we're going to arrest some people that shouldn't be on the road. Uh, fishing, yes. They're fishing, trolling for uh, arrestees, um, you know, and, and if it's legal, uh, you can't really complain about it. At the same time, once they've got you there then, they want to see somebody drunk. They imagine you to be drunk. I have a video I'm studying on a case I'm going to file now uh, involving a township nearby here with... Uh, you know, they pull a guy over who had one beer an hour ago, and he's not drunk, and you can see he's not drunk, and he's completely coherent, and yet the officer and the backup officer who comes to the scene, they go back and they go, well, you know, I don't really have enough clues from his field sobriety tests. He did the walking. I mean, it's freezing out here, and it's windy, and trucks are going by, and he still stood on one leg. He still walked a straight line, but I, you know, I'll suspect when he went and had that beer, he probably, he's probably on the way up. This was a phrase the two officers used back and forth over and over again. I think he's on the way up. Even though he's not drunk now, he'll be drunk in 20 or 30 minutes. So uh, let's take him in and charge him with OVI and give him a test when we get him back to the police station. Uh, at first, they tell him he can go. Uh, call an Uber, we're not going to let you drive away, but after a conference with their sergeant uh, on the radio, they decide, nah, let's just tow him and take him in, and if he passes the test, what the hell. Uh, so they take him in, but then they realize he has to, they have to have an excuse, and they charge him with OMVI, and he spends two grand for a lawyer. He has to pay to get his vehicle back, and he wasn't drunk in the first place. So Making contact like that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy and uh, one that is at the expense of the freedom of American citizens. I would suspect, Jim, that you would say that situation is spawned by the notion of us versus them. We got to protect sheep from the wolves that they get from the police academy. Or am I reading too much into this? Uh, no, not at all. That's it, it's kind of uh, in police culture, as I've watched millions of these videos for all of these decades, uh, and before there were videos heard from witnesses, and including police officers. I've had friends in law enforcement who have, you know, whispered things to me and, you know, talked to me about their work. Um, it's kind of a game in a way. Uh, how many how many arrests can you make tonight? It's kind of a, uh, I mean, there are some jurisdictions uh, that actually applaud uh, you for your number of, they call it, you know, um, being active. We want you to be active when you're out there on, uh, you know, on tr highway patrol. And if, if you're driving along and you don't 
see anybody breaking the law so you don't stop anybody and you come back, you might be criticized for that. Well, you didn't do anything. Well, I didn't see anybody break the law. Yeah, right. Well, you know, next time we want a few stops. We want to, you know, so there's a whole culture like that that encourages it. And then once you've got them stopped, who knows, anything can happen. Jim, you uh, take these cases to court and I presume, like in many uh, uh, things we trial lawyers do, there are both state causes of action and federal. What are the, uh, you know, what are the challenges to, uh, to uh, bring a case against a uh, law enforcement agency? Uh, there are several. One is that oftentimes your clients are not wealthy. In fact, almost every time your clients are not in a position to say, here's $5,000, uh, 500 for the filing fee and the service and the rest for depositions. Here's another two or three grand to get me a law enforcement expert. Um, they, you know, these are working people by and large, uh, or sometimes low income people who can't do that. A second roadblock to people pursuing them is the fact that unless they were killed, uh, in which case you never get to meet your client, you just meet their families. But in most cases, there are like with Marshane Hawkins, cover charges. Uh, we did something, we're going to accuse you of crimes so that we have an explanation for why we did the things we did. You will be offered a plea bargain. I had uh, two young brothers from Steubenville, Ohio, long ago, who were charged with serious felonies, each looking at 20 years in jail, who were offered a $100 fine when we got ready for the first day of trial and they finally realized, oh my God, these, uh, these guys are actually gonna call us on this one. And we did end up spending four weeks in trial and uh, ended successfully. But, uh, you know, they said, we'll, we'll let you plead to disorderly conduct and pay a $100 fine. And my courageous Vietnam uh, military veteran client and his minister brother said, Mac, we didn't do anything wrong. We're not paying a nickel. We're not saying a word. To hell with them. We're going to trial. We're innocent. We're going to win the trial. And I said, whoa, 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 I can't promise. We know we are. Uh, these were two young black men in a relatively small town in the late 1970s. They got an all-white jury. Uh, one of the jurors in the criminal trial was a fellow who lived out in the country during voir dire, and we had run out of challenges, so we couldn't kick him off the jury. This one juror said, uh, you know, something about colored boys. And we went, oh my God, we're in trouble with this guy. Uh, we had a four week trial and found out at the end of the case that he was one of our strongest supporters. Uh, this farmer uh, from rural Jefferson County had gone back there and, and argued our side of the case. And we talked to him and said, you know, why did you help us so much? Why did you feel so strongly about it? And he shook my client's hands and he said, well, I just didn't feel like them colored boys done nothing wrong. So, you know, you, you come to really develop some faith. Uh, your clients had it all the time and you as the lawyer have to be taught that sometimes people really are good and really can see the truth. So we try a lot of these cases. 
Jim, if your analysis is correct about the systematic training, the notion of sheep being protected by the sheepdogs, the paramilitary training, if all of that is right, then it seems to me that creating change is a Herculean effort. I mean, if we listen to politicians, they're hung up on this, it seems to me, on this few bad apples theory and some superficial changes. But what you're saying is a complete mindset, a complete attitudinal change. And if I'm hearing you correctly, well, how do you accomplish all that? Um, about a million mostly young uh, multiracial Americans uh, showed us a good way to start over the last month in this country and one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, a civil rights movement that is not stopping, that's actually having made the splash, now getting down to the hard work of making changes in every field of American life, both about the race issue as a broader issue and about the role of police in our society as an additional issue. Um, so we're at a great turning point. This is one of the most monumental things I've ever seen, but we have been at other moments in my lifetime on these race issues and police issues where there was a great sense of importance for a moment that dissipated. And it ended up just being a question of making incremental, small, uh, you know, technical reforms that didn't, I mean, you know, George Floyd was still killed. Uh, that very department, the Minneapolis Police Department, had had all of that bias training. Those officers had taken it. They had had training about don't use chokeholds under these circumstances. Those officers had had that training. They just didn't give a damn. And so um, those things are not going to be a solution. Ultimately, we're talking about a radical alteration of the role of police departments in American society and in a way that is good. By that I mean, first of all, what won't solve the problem is increased bias training. It's a waste of time. Most officers that take it go have coffee and make jokes about it. The proctors make sure they all pass the test. Tougher laws, tougher rules and regulations. This will not make any significant difference because cops do not follow those rules and regulations like in the Minnesota example. More community policing programs. While this may be a nice thought, uh, everybody do soul searching and you know meet people in your community. Uh, many of the cops who are out pepper spraying journalists on television were probably nice school cops a month ago. It's not about that, it's about the culture. So in terms of specific ideas, uh, no more qualified immunity, police officers should be personally, personally liable for the decisions they make and the actions they take in the line of duty. No more civil asset forfeitures. You know, citizens lose more cash and property every year to unaccountable civil asset forfeiture than all the burglaries combined. The police can steal your stuff, 
without charging you with a crime, and it makes some police departments very rich. Um, you know, again, back to unions, break the power of police unions. People who do things wrong need to be held accountable and not have that blocked by unions. Malpractice insurance for police officers. We make other people do it, and hitting them in the pocketbook is going to decrease the amount of these actions. Demilitarize police departments. They have all that equipment, and they don't have anything to do with it, and American citizens standing up and making complaints is a perfect opportunity for them to try out their uh, armored personnel carriers and their, you know, assault rifles. Uh, defund the police is a phrase that is commonly used now, and it's a great idea if you understand what that really means. We talked earlier about when you have very common police problems, a, a marital spat that has caused someone to call the police but has not yet uh, developed into violence. There are experts who can go there and do a much better job than the average police officer. A person who has a mental health problem and is in a cafe bothering patrons or on the sidewalk scaring people, there are persons other than police officers who can go there and do a much better job uh, homeless people rummaging through trash, all of the things that police officers spend a very large amount of their time, you know, minor drug offenses, decriminalizing a lot of these things, minor drug offenses. There should be no such thing as a vice squad. There should be sex workers, uh, you know, licensed and organized and lawfully doing what they do, just like they legalized gambling a while back. So. All of this takes away from the police the opportunity and the unfortunate experience of having to deal with things that they're not trained to deal with. Um, these are just some suggested solutions. Jim, I want to follow up on what you mentioned a minute ago about qualified immunity. Now, I've got a lawsuit where I've sued a couple police officers for violation of civil rights under civil law. But that's not what you're talking about. What, where do police officers not have personal liability? Um, the, the most significant law that we use to sue police officers is part of the 1860s Civil Rights Acts passed after the Civil War. It's codified in the United States Code at 42 United States Code Section 1983. Um, Section 1983 says that no person, person acting under color of state law, which means any law enforcement officer in any state, uh, has uh, the right to violate your constitutional rights. And if they do, you have a private civil action to sue them. Almost all of the cases that we bring are brought under Section 1983. You can file in state or federal court with that law. About 20 or so years ago, uh, the Supreme Court created something called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity, in theory, at the time, uh, didn't sound like such a big deal. If an officer is found to have violated a person's constitutional rights, so they're guilty. They stopped you on the street when they didn't have a right to, they pulled you over 
they entered your home, they interrogated you, they used physical force on you in some situation where they didn't have the right to do that. Um, but it wasn't illegal when the officer did it. It was only later declared by a court to be illegal. So it was a, an unknown area. It wouldn't be fair to the police officer to hold them to accountability for something that at the time they acted wasn't clearly illegal. Uh, they can't be lawyers and know what the future of the law holds. Makes sense if you think of it in a narrow way, but it has been taken advantage of and grossly expanded by creative uh, lawyers for police departments. And now what it means is that essentially, if I hit you over the head with a billy club, even though you are not resisting arrest or fighting with me, and that's held to be illegal, and then later another officer hits you over the head with a, an ASP, a flexible assault weapon, under circumstances where you are not resisting arrest or uh, you know doing anything risky to me, you would think that the precedent would cover it. Now, this is different. This is a different kind of weapon. So it wasn't clearly established that you couldn't do that. So even though the officer violated your constitutional rights, and we now acknowledge that, the court finds that, you lose. You have no lawsuit. You're out of court. The officer gets away with it. Uh, you have to be able to show a case which was identical. And they're not to look at precedents that are generalized. It has to be very specific to the exact facts that you have in your case. And if one slightly different, but not exactly on point, but clearly telling future officers this sort of thing is not allowed, uh, comes up later in your case, you got a 50-50 shot of losing, of having the case dismissed because they convince the courts that this isn't exactly on point and therefore I'm not responsible and therefore it's out of court. So there are calls, I mean, a wonderful op-ed piece by a Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals judge out of West Virginia in the Washington Post recently said, I have to follow the Supreme Court, but let me tell you what us judges think about this. Uh, we need to get rid of this. So that's one thing. Let me, well, I'm curious about your example. Wouldn't, even in that example that you just gave us, wouldn't you still have a claim under the Civil Rights Act? Well. Under 1983, I mean. No, they, okay. this, this applies to 1983 cases. And it's a federal theory that says even if a plaintiff in a lawsuit successfully proves that the police officer did in fact violate their constitutional rights, if there was no prior case dead on point saying before the officer did that, that that exact same act, not one like it or nearly the same, uh, was illegal, then the officer is immune from your lawsuit and the case is thrown out of court. Jim, when you're in court, do you find that juries have a pro-police bias or the judges have a pro-police bias? 
You know, um, the answer to that question is that you know, everyone knows there is a pro-police bias. It has been uh, the product of decades of what we call copaganda, uh, like propaganda from police departments and their supporters. That anyone who dare, you know, first responders, police officers, uh, Colin Kaepernick is a traitor. Criticizing the police uh, is like, you know, being against God and America. Um, how dare you talk about our men in blue and our women in blue in that fashion? Uh, actually suggesting the opposite of what's really patriotic. I mean, patriotism is to have the nerve to criticize and correct problems by government officials in your country. That's what the police are supposed to be protecting for us instead of telling us to shut up about. But the truth is, every day you hear, oh, those wonderful police officers, these terrible protesters, how can they say bad things about them? In spite of what you see on television. So, you know, and that's where the bad apples thing comes in. How can they paint that brush against all officers when it's only a tiny percentage of bad ones and we're doing all we can? So it's either you're with us or you're against us. I am not, I am not pro-police. I think that's a silly phrase, childish, black and white, unrealistic, should not be used. I am not anti-police. Same thing there. I mean, I'm not pro or anti-doctor. I love doctors. I go to doctors. But if one of them runs a pill mill and sells teenagers opioids to make money, to hell with them. Of course, they should be called to a punishment for it. Same thing with doctors who do poor jobs and are negligent in their treatment of people. So that's not being anti-doctor. And no one would treat you as unpatriotic for criticizing doctors or people who work in hardware stores or c c cab drivers, who, by the way, have a much more dangerous job than police officers, statistically. They're not made to be patriotic symbols. Um, patriotism is actually taking on these issues, not putting a I'm pro-police bumper sticker on your car and a flag in your window. Democracy is something that you do it's not something you believe in. It's not a series of theories or a system in the abstract. Democracy is something that you do in your city, in your country, every week. And if you don't actually do it, you don't actually have it. No matter what you say you believe in, they would like us to shut up and go home. That's anti-democratic, that's un-American and unpatriotic in itself. Jim, uh, I think uh, Jack and I could talk to you about this stuff all day long, but that's about all the time we have. And just uh, as a fellow lawyer, uh, I want to thank you for your dedication to the Constitution and uh, fighting for individual rights of your clients. I uh, really commend you, and uh, I want to follow some of the things that you're doing currently, too. Thank you for having me. And always remember, it's not the lawyer, it's the client who makes the history. I'm just helping these people. Uh, my clients are the real heroes. Thanks.
Jim, I share uh, John's feelings. I, I'm really impressed with what you do and what you have to say, and thank you for joining us. Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with Jen Miller of the Ohio League of Women Voters. We'll be talking about voting rights and voting suppression. I invite you to subscribe to Lawyer Up by going to our website, lawyeruppolumbus.com. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.